I'll go. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> welcome. Uh, welcome to the threes. Uh, I'm Caleb. This is my co-host, uh, Jared. And today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Rod Thompson. Um, now, today, uh, unfortunately, we are not able to be joined by our lovely co-host, Christine. She's not feeling too well. Um, but hopefully she may be able to join us partway through. If not, we'll just uh, carry on. Um, so should we get started with that intro, Jared? Let's do it. Um, I mean, I can't get over the fact that I'm feeling like a happy little fanboy in this moment. <laughs> what an opportunity sitting down with you, Rod. Uh, thank you for doing this with us. Real, real privilege. Thank you. My pleasure. Lovely to have the chance to chat. So let's do it. <laughs> All righty. Uh, two or three gathered was a series of conversations with Christian brothers and sisters considering their efforts and contributions to the kingdom vocationally their stories and testimonies of God's sovereignty and grace, and an opportunity to tackle the relevant issues the church faces in the 21st century. In this, we seek to equip the saints by networking within the body, starting the conversation around often taboo subjects and seeking to develop unity across Christian denominations and traditions by opening up discussion on worthy, necessary topics. We want to help educate the wider body of Christ by asking these experts and people of wisdom across multiple fields, the hot button questions and sophisticated questions that we believe there are answers for in Christchurch, but that there is not necessarily always access to. We want to further the growth of knowledge and wisdom in ourselves to worship God with our minds and fellowship with all of you as we collectively seek to discern what God-glorifying discipleship looks like for us in respective vocations and in our spheres of influence. It is our heart and hope that Christ himself would be in our midst as we converse about things we believe he himself is very interested in. Welcome to Twos or Threes. Thanks for gathering with us. Cool. Uh, so, Rod, uh, we were talking a little bit about this before the podcast. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of scope as to where we're going and what we intend to do with you today. A very, uh, very worthy goal that you've set for yourselves. Good on you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I believe, uh, Caleb, you're wanting to start us off with our series of questions today, right? Um but I mean, we should, before we do that, we wanted to actually just introduce you, the audience, to those of you who don't know, um, a little bit about actually who Rod is and um, why we think, um, one, why we're fanboying, and two, why we think he's such an important guest to actually have on and actually hear from. Mm. Indeed. Well, we'll give you a little bit of an intro, um, probably to Rod and, uh, and some of his works and background. Um, yeah, probably starting off with this. Uh, so a little bio that we've been sent through is that Rod uh, came to faith when he was 19 years of age, uh, some 50 years ago. Um, could have fooled us, I, I, I would say probably probably 30 years ago. Yeah, 25, 21. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, at the time, he was a first-year student at Sydney University work, working towards an art degree. He completed a BA at uh, BA diploma in, sorry, in education. And in 1974, 
and began secondary teaching out in outback New South Wales in the town of Bork. Just correct me if my pronunciation is off there. Bork? Bork, sorry. <laughs> um, in 1975. Remarkably, this is where he met his wife-to-be, Roseanne, who had come to Australia from Illinois in the USA. Roseanne was also teaching in Burke, uh, and Rod has, has now been married to Roseanne for nearly 45 years. Uh, they have four adult children and seven grandchildren, with another on the way. Uh, Rod is taught in both government and Christian high schools. He has also been a pastor and planted a church in Mount Druitt in Sydney's western suburbs in 1987. In 2003, Rod completed a PhD at Marquery. Am I saying that correctly? Macquarie. 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 Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> what do we do without you? <laughs> uh, Rod completed a PhD in 2003 at Macquarie University, exploring the foundational impact of the Bible on Christian schooling in Australia. Rod served as the national principal CEO of Label College in Auckland, New Zealand from 2010 to 2015. That is where um, our association actually comes from with Rod previously. In 2016, Rod and Roseanne uh, returned to Sydney to be closer again to family. Rod is now a minister in the pastoral team of Springwood Presbyterian Churches in Sydney's Blue Mountains, as well as working in the area of professional learning with Christian Educational National, uh, CEN. And they have a miniature snail of the dog named Bennett. He's a lot of fun. Rod enjoys blues, jazz, and country music. When melancholic, he listens in particular to Billy Holiday. <laughs> Rod is grateful to God for the adventure he's been on. God's mercy and grace are unfathomable. Amen to that. Amen. Cool. Well, um, that, that's definitely an impressive uh, bio, I would say. Um, as mentioned, you know, you, you uh, were the national principal slash CEO of Laidlaw. Um, and as Jared says, that's where we have our connection. I was there briefly in 2013. Um, I had to leave because I, I, I was far too immature. Um, <laughs> and uh, you were also, um, yeah. So, so there's been been quite a quite a mixture of things working in education to ministry, a mixture of the both. Um, but what drew you? from uh, education, out of education rather, in, into pastoral ministry. Um, uh, I, I, know, I know that Jared would be very curious about that because he, he's, he's on a similar trajectory to that. Yeah. Well, both of them are uh, uh, teaching roles. And uh, when I look back at my life, largely it's been teaching in a context such as a church or yeah. a home or a school. And uh, I'm probably the most surprised at the journey. Um, it wasn't one that I anticipated or, or planned or even uh, thought would occur. When we married, uh, we were 24. Uh, I was a teacher in a high school and looking to have a long career in teaching. Uh, my wife had been a teacher in a primary school. But the Lord uh, guides our lives often in unexpected ways. And I like to talk about the U-turns in Christian experience where we end up going in perhaps the opposite direction to what we had thought we would go in. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of 
one of those who was least likely to achieve anything much in life. I'm quite shy. Uh, I was the youngest in my family, a, a twin with an older twin and an older brother, uh, not particularly ambitious and uh, quite happy with my own company. So when the Lord takes you and leads you and guides you, you end up doing things that you don't expect. And so moving into pastoral ministry and then into leadership roles somewhat reluctantly um, has characterised the latter years of my life. And uh, when I look back, it's um, sometimes it's been kicking and screaming and uh, often it's been uh, with uh, trepidation and fear. So I, I quite like Paul's language of fear and trepidation in Philippians, Corinthians and other passages, because I think really uh, life isn't meant to be comfortable and cozy all the time. It's, it's meant to be obedient. And often that means God taking us in directions that we perhaps weren't anticipating and discovering gifts and abilities in the doing rather than um, in an expected fashion. So God draws things out of us, I think, and sometimes that's particularly difficult. So our our years in New Zealand, which were on the back of finishing the doctoral study, um, we certainly never anticipated, but we look back now with great gratitude and uh, thankfulness for them. Hmm. I, I really like that, um, that you mentioned the it's not always comfortable. Um, I mean, there's, there's comfort in some ways. Um, I'm reminded how in Acts, it, it speaks of the early church. It's, it says that they, they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean they were, they were laid back and on, on lounges like their, uh, like their Roman neighbors, but um, yeah. they, they were definitely, um, that, that they had a sense of peace to it. Uh, yet they were in the fear of the Lord. and Yeah, um, yeah there is comfort in the struggle. And I, and I think Romans 8, uh, the end of the chapter, Paul Paul talks about in all these things we're more than conquerors, not from all these things we're more than conquerors. So he, mm. he talks about the sword and famine and death and power and so forth. He says in all these things we're more than conquerors. Uh, I think often we, we long to God for God to take things from us which are tough. Uh, but what he rather does is empower us for those things and comfort us in those things, not necessarily from those things. So we talk about a person struggling with alcohol or with debilitating mental illness or whatever it might be, uh, a, a terrible temper. Uh, often the Lord doesn't take those things away. He gifts and enables us for those challenges uh, and so the biblical idea of strength in weakness is much more important than strength instead of weakness. Sometimes we've got this great um, giving over of weakness to strength as though triumph looks like becoming really strong. But in scripture, triumph actually looks like being strong in weakness, not strong instead of weakness. And uh, so I think our lives then are genuinely as disciples of Christ typified by the struggle that that represents or the tension that that represents that God keeps pushing us into the experience of strength and weakness. And that's certainly been my uh, experience over, over the years. I, if I hadn't come to Christ when I was 19, I wouldn't have done anything. I was passive, lazy, uh, disinterested. Um, but from the time of that meeting with Christ till now, uh, God has agitated in me um, 
purpose and direction that has been a struggle. And uh, strength and weakness, I think, is a good description for our experience as disciples of Christ. And Jesus on the cross, of course, is the epitome of strength in weakness as he willingly sacrifices himself in love and yet in resurrection shows that power. Uh, he is always, however, the crucified, resurrected Messiah who is incorruptible by power because he holds strength in weakness. Mm, I love that. Um, I was like, I was thinking thematically, like um, I think I even said it in the, the correspondence and the questions we put through to you. Um, a lot of how we've had the privilege of hearing you preach and speak. It reminds me a lot of first Corinthians one, you know, the idea of, you know, the foolishness of the cross, the weakness of the cross, but that is in where God's glory is most shown. That's how he chooses ops to actually perform. And I think like that's a, that's a marvelous thing, isn't it? That yeah. upside down kingdom of actually how yeah. God operates. Hey, um, it seems really, it seems a really recurrent theme throughout our, your different work and then your different speaking engagements, as far as I've noticed anyway. Um, yeah, it is a recurring theme. And um, most of what I learned deeply about Christ, I learned in the days we lived in Mount Druitt in Sydney's West, a uh, cluster of working class suburbs planted by government agencies uh, who, um, who brought into being a, a very troubled set of suburbs because of their housing policies um, so recent migrants, Indigenous people being relocated from the city, uh, single-parent families, uh, endemic uh, struggle uh, and poverty, that's where I really learned to be a disciple of Christ, in, in a place where people weren't readers, they weren't uh, ambitious educationally, uh, and yet in that place I ended up, while we were living there, doing my doctoral work at Macquarie Uni, so I had this very strange experience of ministering to the poor and studying at the university uh, and working through some fairly intense educational issues and questions. Mm. And um, I, think, I think pastoring with people who know their need and whom the Lord is lifting up out of that, that's where we learn discipleship. Mm. So I'm, we were there for 24 years in the Mount Druid area planted a church there, taught at Wayland High School, and they were heady days with lots of challenges, lots of failures, lots of challenges uh, for the young people there with drugs and bullying and violence and um, gang, endemic gang rivalries. Um, but And all of our four kids were born into that context. Wow. But we, we look back on those days as very formative, mm. uh, very instructive for what the gospel looks like. Uh, and so Jesus in the Roman Empire days, I think, experienced um, a similar challenge to work with the poor when corrupt power embodied in the Roman emperor and army uh, was in control. And uh, what Jesus did was bring a revolution into being. Mm. Yeah, like, as I, I mean, it's so curious, like it's so juxtaposed, it would seem, by what you're describing, right? Um, like I, I was going to say, it's like, but you got to tell me about like, is about that because in that context, you planted a church, right? Yeah. But, but on the base of that explanation, it seems a lot of, well, of course you planted a church because, you know, that's where Christ's kingdom is and, you know, flourishes, yeah. you know, that seems to be the biblical 
model that seems to be the trend by which Holy Spirit works, right? Um, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about like that church and what that was like? And- yeah, it was in Plumpton, a suburb called Plumpton, and uh, commenced in our home. Uh, so we had uh, home-based ministries, so barbecues in the backyard. We, we, a group of us bought a couple of homes together, and then we started buying houses in the same streets so that we could walk to each other's places and share shopping and lawnmowers and um, caravans. And there was a sharing of possessions, which was, I think, uh, really helpful for us in those days. Uh, so proximity uh, one to the other in suburban settings and urban settings really does cut through a lot of the isolation and loneliness mm. that people feel and the, the mm. need for everybody to own motor cars and so forth. Mm. Then we moved into a high school and uh, we never bought church property and um, we uh, we planted the church and it, it grew. It had plenty of problems and uh, has closed down since after we left. But uh, we made a lot of mistakes and I think the adventure and the challenge of ministry uh, in those contexts is very wearing. Uh, I think at the end of the 90s, uh, after some real failures in ministry, I, I was at a point of burnout and uh, that's why I did the doctorate uh, I needed to withdraw mm. from people and um, I resigned from pastoral leadership in 1998 and uh, thought I'll try a master's and then I went straight from that into a doctoral study and uh, and revived uh, doing that work and that work has shaped the rest of my life um, because I inquired into what I thought was a really important issue and how does the Bible actually shape educational vision and practice what i found uh has fueled everything for me uh, in new zealand during the 11 or 12 years we were there and in the christian schooling movement here in australia since so pastoring and then back into uh to education and school contexts uh, was was what resulted uh, but the church was a wonderful experience and the holy spirit moved very much among us we saw many people come to christ we baptized lots of people we uh, enjoyed, I think, um, a close fellowship and many friends which we made in those days uh, remain and some of them are, are now up here in Springwood in, in the Presbyterian churches that we're involved with uh, up here. But Mount Druitt was uh, very formative uh, for me. As I say, I started teaching there in uh, 1977 and planted the church in 87 after doing some theology study. Uh, and then the masters and the doctorate followed at the end of the 90s into the early early 2000s uh, but it's not um, the church growth movement i think is very problematical uh, when measured by income and numbers uh, we really do uh, value what god does amongst us in terms of discipleship not in terms of numbers so the whole idea that being a minister is a career or a, uh, a lifelong career is misplaced and uh, it's a vocation. It's certainly not a career. And we don't expect uh, uh, churches to support professional workers as, a, as a necessary. Um, what we do expect is for churches to raise up disciples for Jesus. And that can look very different in very different places. And in a place like Druitt, where people are doing it tough financially, uh, you're not going to uh, secure a, you know, a wage income for life or anything like that, but you never intended to. Uh, so I've always worked part-time with churches and kept my hand in teaching and uh, writing and other work, curriculum writing, because I just don't think uh, full-time 
ministry as a church leader makes a lot of sense um, given the way that uh, the church's goal can be shifted by the demand of the budget or paying mm. wages. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I remember at the church that you and I, Jared, used to fellowship at um, Shaw Vineyard. Uh, I remember the pastor Vic Francis talking about how um, uh, he he was at a conference with a bunch of other or a meeting of some sorts with, with a lot of other um, pastors. And, you know, he, he said there was a bit of a code there at times that, you know, it was, it was, how's your church doing? And it was really just code for what, what are your numbers? Like, what's your growth? Like, you know, um, and it's growth in numbers, not, not. Yeah. Growth in people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is much harder to measure, of course. Yeah, I used to I used to tell that story when I was at Kurong shopping where we'll go and get our Christian books and things. First question is how are you? Second question is how's your family? Third question, how's your church growing? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> particularly back in the eighties and uh, during the charismatic revival years, uh, growth was anticipated in numerical and financial terms. And that created a counter-narrative, I think, to what the gospel actually is. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we've escaped some of that, I think, some of that expectation in, in more recent uh, decades. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was very much a, a pressure on uh, professional ministers at that time. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm curious, um, Rod, with the... The doctorate. Um, I found it. Uh, it's quite hard to find online. You know, I will. I will pursue. I will uh, <laughs> persevere there. Uh, but I was able to find out it was a re review of eight Christian schools. That's mm -hmm. correct. And you were looking at the impact of how teaching of the Bible affects Christian education. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, it was eight Christian schools in which I did a more intensive uh, exploration, but uh, a couple of hundred teachers participated and then there was a document study as well so there was uh, several levels to the doctorate but my my hunch was that uh, the christian schooling movement which had burgeoned in the uh, from the 1950s onwards largely with immigration from uh, holland and other places where christian schooling was revered as an extension of covenantal uh, and family commitments to raise children in a Christian context. And then churches started planting schools as well. Uh, that movement claimed that the Bible was the foundational document for its educational vision, mission and practices. And my hunch was that, that wasn't the case, hmm. um, that what had happened was that the movement, uh, and we're talking hundreds of schools, hmm. And there's some of them very much in New Zealand as well, which are of the same ilk, that the movement was in fact uh, founded on a very uh, minimised use of scripture. Um, some select texts, um, some proof texts around education and uh, identity, and that the whole Bible per se uh, was largely disappearing as a foundational influence, not, a, not only in schools, but in individuals' lives and in churches and homes. And so I asked the question, how, how did the full scriptures influence your educational work? And uh, I think my proposal uh, realised what I had expected, but also I, I learned a great deal more about that issue. Mm. Uh, all of us as Christians 
want to be in Scripture. We want to know God in, uh, in reference to the witness of Scripture. But we're living in such a fast-paced world and education is such a fast-paced uh, context, um, teaching children the demands of governments and parents and safety policies and uh, all the rest of it, uh, that getting time in Scripture and thinking from Scripture to work is increasingly very difficult to do. So these days I, I talk about immersion in scripture must shape engagement with culture. And once it begins to do so, you've got a dialogue between cultural voices and biblical voices and the authority lies with scripture for the faithful witness into culture, including education. And that brings with it an embrace of very considerable tension. So Leslie Newbigin talked about that tension as unbearable and uh, I think it's not unbearable, but it's significant. If we live in the scripture for the world uh, and for our work, we're going to be people who are embraced in very considerable, embracing very considerable tension. And I found that to be the case in the Christian education scene. Uh, largely, I'm not a pessimist, but largely I think our Christian schools have been disappointing over the generations uh, since oh, the decades, since the 1940s and 50s. Uh, it's been hard to hold on to our educational mission and vision statements. And I think one reason is because we, we're just not as countercultural as we claim to be because biblical grounds aren't as revolutionary because we've, we've bought into a culturally uh, acceptable gospel, uh, often called a triumphalistic gospel or a consumer-shaped gospel, and then we've educated on that basis rather than on the basis of the crucified, risen Messiah that we see in the writings of the, of the scripture. Mm. So, so then like, boy, because I'm like, I mean, I find myself in the Kingsway context and it's like, there, there are some things that I know we're doing well, but I know some things that we are aware of that we're not. And also things that probably, you know, probably a lot of things that we're not aware of that we're not. Right. So it's like, I mean, how do you evaluatively critique that, right? Did you did you come away at the end of that uh, doctoral thesis proposing here are some measures how you yeah. can know as a Christian school? Like, what is important? Yeah, yeah, I made uh, a bunch of recommendations at the end of the of the mm. doctorate, um, many of which I think uh, have been bought into by different schools, and Kingsway is one of them that's been asking plenty of questions about its educational practice and reviewing that over the years. And I've had quite a bit to do with Kingsway over the over the time uh, but the key the key to it which is difficult to unlock is that the teachers who educate young people in our schools have to be individually and as a community of educators immersed in scripture in their own lives yeah. so it's not a matter of merely having a perspective or a formula or a curriculum document in your hand, it's actually a matter of being a walking, talking disciple of Christ mm -hmm. uh, across your life 24-7, which you then bring into your classroom and educational mm. practice. So here in Australia, we've certainly decided that professional learning is crucial. And uh, the one-off professional learning event where you do a seminar on how to read the Bible uh, has very little impact. It's got to be part of the main game of the school that the teachers are regularly being helped and challenged and encouraged into biblical discussions with one another and biblical thought and biblical reflection for their work. 
uh, and becoming biblically uh, immersed people in their in their lives twenty four seven. Biblical literacy is declining. Uh, so I finished the doctoral work in two thousand and three. It's nearly twenty years on now, and um, I was working uh, speaking with people in Canada just a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying that the biggest challenge is that. Christians coming into education to teach uh, in, are more likely now biblically illiterate than they were a decade or two ago. And I think that's right because the church is failing us in terms of the quality of its preaching. Uh, Christian conferences are failing us in that they're not working much with biblical text and helping people to read well and think well out of the grounds of Scripture. And so for me, this is the biggest issue that uh, all of us as disciples of Christ find how will we educate the new generation uh in in biblical immersion for cultural engagement with the tension that that brings uh what will that look like for christian homes churches and schools uh it's not negotiable it's essential we've got to do it uh so i'm probably looking to you know whatever years the lord gives me to making that the main game from this point on to providing resources and uh, contexts uh, for that to continue. Uh, we've never sealed it. We've never, uh, we've never got it. We don't hold it. It's an ongoing challenge every day, every year, uh, that schools will continue to need to embrace. Yeah, no, that, that, that reminds me. Um, it, it just makes me think of the, the basic call of ministry to the least of these. And, and, in, in some ways, uh, how, you, how you're talking about us becoming biblically illiterate by surrounding ourselves with a lot of um, heavily Christian contexts. It's, it's moving away from the world that we're to be ministering to. Um, I, I found from a personal perspective, um, some of the best times in which I've been able to minister to people was when I was working in a maximum security prison. Um, there, right. there were a lot of Bibles around, uh, but they, they were mostly used uh, as, as rolling papers. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, 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 was, it was the best place in, in which I could minister to people. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think that came from a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of privilege of, on behalf of those who were being ministered to. Yeah. Yeah. And often I think the Bible has been somewhat hijacked by... Uh, um, by wealthy, contented people who are looking for verses to deal with their anxiety or their daily needs. Um, the Bible, uh, when we were in our Mount Druid days, uh, we were working with people who didn't read. So it was a talked about text. It was a preached text. It was a dialogued text. And uh, sadly, we've surrendered much of the wonder of the text for the neat and uh, clear portions. We've, we've told kids over and over the parable of the sower Everybody knows Micah 6, 8 uh, or um, Philippians 4, 4 or Matthew 28, 18 to 20. There's these elevated proof texts that we appeal to. But very few people now know anything about the great stories, uh, the wondrous stories of Scripture. It's a strange world. It's an ancient world. It's a translated text. Uh, we've given over wonder, imagination, passion, uh, the distance of Scripture the grounding strangeness of a speaking God, of a talking donkey, of a floating 
arc of the miracle working Elijah, we've given all that away um, for the neat proof texts, which uh, will meet my daily need. So if I get up in the morning and I read Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not rely on your own insight, I feel I've got something for the day. If I get up in the morning and read the Levitical laws about removing mould from the walls of houses or dealing with emissions of blood or, or semen, I don't feel like I've got anything for the day. So I've stopped reading Leviticus and I've memorised Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Yeah. Uh, it's an uneven usage of scripture, elevated and denigrated texts. I don't want to not elevate Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. I want to elevate the rest of it alongside so that what we're doing as 21st century uh, disciples of Jesus is living in two worlds. We're living in the wondrous ancient world of Babylon and Egypt and Israel and Rome and Galilee and Sinai. And we're also living in the consumer-driven, fast-paced world of Sydney and Auckland and so forth. And we're finding the collision between the God who speaks in Scripture and the God who speaks to the 21st century that uh, I'm now needing to work out how, how to be wondrously faithful in this time and place, out of that time and place. Mm. Uh, so there's some work to be done. And secular uh, folks don't have to do that work. They, they, Romans 12, they're just getting swept along by the patterns of the world. Uh, we're talking about the renewal of our minds. We're talking about uh, worship uh, out of the work of immersion and prayer and faithful response and hearing the Holy Spirit. So sure, there's more work to be done uh, because we're, we're claiming that our God has spoken uniquely and authoritatively in Scripture for this present day and we're swimming against the stream. So there is more work uh, to be done, but it's wondrous work. And without it, um, our discipleship and our, our impact, our insight, our wisdom, is considerably blunted and eventually we become, I think, not counterformed but conformed yeah. uh, to the world. Uh, yeah. We've often talked about, you know, let's read the Bible in a year. Let's, let's address and That's not immersion. <laughs> hmm. uh, reading the Bible in a year means three chapters a day on average uh, will get you through the Bible in a year. That seems to me a very low goal. Uh, reading through scripture, uh, listening through scripture uh, can, can fill our lives in a, in a far greater way than that. We watch a lot of movies, we read a lot of books, we listen to a lot of music, uh, even a lot of podcasts, uh, and scripture should be right up there with the first thing that we do and not just one or two chapters a day. Yeah. Uh, memorizing, singing, praying, imagining, cartooning, chanting, um, artworking, uh, living in the world of scripture, becoming interested in tabernacles and temples and shrines and ancient times and uh, memorizing. Uh, you know, when you see somebody who's immersed in carpentry, for example, it's one of the guiding things in their lives. They smell wood, they love wood, they cut wood, they play around with it. That's what we need to do with scripture. And if we won't, then we won't expect to have a great impact, I don't think, uh, as disciples of Christ in the current yeah. arena. Um, so th there's a revolution required within, within the 
the Christian communities of which we're a part with regard to scripture. And it can happen in schools and families and churches uh, if we're, if we're um, captured by this notion. Mm, so true. Yeah. That, that, um, that reminds me a little bit of where, when you're saying elevating certain areas of scripture and discarding the parts that we're not so comfortable with or not so yeah. it just remi- uh, without going too much into it that reminds me just uh so much of um someone that i i uh, have quoted or mentioned several times um dr michael heiser um whose work is often about the the supernatural elements of of scripture or the uh, the supernatural uh, biblical worldview um, yep. and taking into account or ev- anything and everything that can be found in scripture um, but without without getting into that uh, that too much because uh, I could go on for for days about Michael Heiser and his uh, <laughs> um, be it about his ideas about scripture or or even aliens um, <laughs> uh, back back to um to a time uh in, in, in the uh, in the last decade at Laidlaw, um, your time at Laidlaw, Rod. What can you summarize your time there, and um, what yeah. were some highs and lows of, of the yeah yeah of, of the the time that you had? There? Yeah, plenty of both. Um, Michael Heiser, by the way, I I have read and and uh, listened to, and I I appreciate his attentiveness to uh, Hebrew scripture. Yeah. Uh, and probably the other two names I'll just mention before we talk to Laidlaw that I felt, find very encouraging in terms of their immersion in scripture. I, Eugene Peterson, who died recently mm-hmm. and whose yeah. biography is well worth reading, uh, whose engagement with scripture commenced when he was very young. Um, yeah. So he talks about when he was a 12 and 13 year old meditating on memorized portions of the, of the scriptures and Dietrich. Bonhoeffer, who uh, had a remarkable relationship with God in Scripture, and the courage and wisdom that he displayed during terrible years under Nazi oppression uh, speak volumes, I think, to the way the Bible can shape uh, diligent students and uh, his discipling methods and commitments with young men uh, are very impressive. Uh, my my years at Laidlaw were from uh, 2008 to 2015, uh, uh, principal from September 2010 to the end of 15. Um, yeah, I came there when Mark Strong was the principal and uh, I had known Mark here in Sydney as a church planter when I was a church planter and we shared some theological convictions in like kind. It was a great privilege to be on the staff at Laidlaw and I loved uh, those years um, writing uh, biblical theology uh, paper and the worldviews paper so we had several papers which we were uh, grounding things around and uh, two of them I was privileged to write the worldviews paper and the biblical theology paper which will have both changed somewhat by now uh, and imagining, I think, a college which had a much closer relationship with uh, with cultural leadership uh, and wasn't such an enclave or a, um, a, a restricted place, which was just training people for overseas mission or for ministry leadership in churches, but was looking to to impact education and business 
and entertainment and media, uh, and so the education degree and faculty and the counselling degree and faculty uh, came in during those particular years, and it moved from being a, a Bible college to Labor College, being um, uh, offering multiple uh, degrees and. Uh, that, that breadth of vision, um, which came from Mark and the staff at that time, was really exciting. Uh, we had conversations with Regent in Vancouver and we had partnerships with others around the world into Indonesia and Korea and the Pacific Islands and um, India. Uh, so, you know, tremendous privilege. Um, but it was also for me, particularly the years as principal, very difficult years uh, when we were restructuring the college and there needed to be a number of um, budget cuts and staff redundancies. And uh, we'd closed down the regional campuses during 2007 and eight, I think. And so there was um, a perception, I think, that laid law had changed and perhaps moved away from its foundational um, commitments which were more in the Brethren Baptist line uh, so alumni were feeling a bit disenfranchised and uh, a lot of my time was rebuilding some trust and relationships and affirming again our evangelical uh, biblical commitments to to the church to mission as well as to the world of business and education and entertainment and media uh, so a lot of reconciliation, a lot of relationship building. And so my, my gift areas probably are in that pastoral area. I'm not an academic. And um, I found the whole academic side of the college uh, challenging and at times distasteful. But there were others on the staff who are wonderful academics and they were world-renowned in theology and counselling and other areas. Um, so I was a little bit of a fish out of water, I think, in some ways. And uh, when the board asked me to continue as principal at the end of 15, I said, no, we were going to come back here to, to be around family again. So grandchildren were being born. And it, I found that a relief to, uh, to be back here in, in New South Wales and to move back into church leadership and ministry um, again. But uh, educational contexts are thrilling. Uh, uh, seeing young disciples growing up and learning about the Lord and making great choices is wonderful. Uh, technology is changing. Uh, Globalisation is changing. The whole educational sector is extremely competitive. Uh, within New Zealand, uh, there were competitors uh, outside of New Zealand. New Zealand students now choose to study with uh, Fuller or Regent or study through Singapore or whatever, Australia. Um, so there's always demands uh, which I think are hard to meet and there's government funding, NZQA expectations. Mm. Uh, so all of that uh, I, I found difficult. So I would, I would look back on the years at Laidlaw with gratitude, um, but humbly I would say uh, others uh, can and will do a better job than I did and uh, I pray for Laidlaw and for Roshan and the team that are there now and uh, college I gather is doing very well. Um, so grateful that uh, those years that I was there were um, transitional years, I think, and now perhaps labels into a new phase and with campus moving and uh, property sale and so forth, uh, there's lots of opportunity for labor to continue on the trajectory God's got for it. But mm. 
um, yeah, great years, challenging years. It's it's curious what you say because it's like um, my impression of the college going through as a student, it felt very ecumenical, like I'm going through, not unlike, you know, the experience at Kingsway now, um, staff and students, you know, and parents and the wider community. But I, I, I definitely felt your influence, Rod, in terms of... Um, and I, I think I think I'm speaking, you know, fairly confidently on you know the general consensus of other students during your your tenure there, during your time there, um, that the influence was in terms of relationality. You know, we felt that you were a principal that you could have a conversation with, and you were actually in touch. You know, um, and I think it, it reflects a lot of your actual how you do life in terms of actually it's not about like necessarily the numbers game it's about actually our people being transformed by discipleship i think yeah. that really came across and not only you know my interactions with you you know um which wouldn't have been many over the time of like, years of course but certainly this is the consensus i've had from other people mm. i i just wonder like um uh, a friend of yours a good friend of yours and uh an inspiring lecturer of mine die Stola. She, um, on a number of occasions, talked about that idea of um, kingdom professionals. Mm. I wonder, is that something of an idea that actually kind of guided how you sought to do things in the college, that you wanted people to go out and actually, hey, wherever you name, just wherever you go, whatever you do, just carry God's name, represent yeah. Christ where you are. Is that kind of, yeah? would yeah. that be insincere to, for me to say that? It's like, no, that is actually a representation of... No, I, th I think that's right. I, I, uh, I think we're, we're called to be uh, disciples or kingdom professionals in all of the contexts in which we live. Um, Laidlaw's history, of course, was very much sending people out into church or missional leadership. Um, that dichotomy between uh, Christians in leadership in the church or overseas mission and the idea of being in mission as a baker or a a seller of fish or a sports person uh, needs to be surrendered. Uh, the hierarchy of Christians in social work and church work as against engineering and science needs to be surrendered. Uh, great biblical discipling thinking and action in uh, medicine, science, the legal world is just as important as it is, of course, in the classroom and the, the parenting of, of children at home. Uh, so I think Laidlaw embraced that um, that vision um, through the previous principles uh, and and increasingly now. Uh, but I wanted to I wanted to be a non anxious presence at the college. Uh, there'd been such a transition, such a radical transition in two thousand four, five, six, and prior to that, a principal had died. Brian Hathaway had died, and um, There'd been other calamities uh, back in the 90s. NZQA funding had come in in the 90s. So the college had been through, after a very settled couple of decades when David Stewart was a long-term principal, the college had been through very radical change. And the Christian world had been through very radical change, the, the years of revival, charismatic renewal, and now the new challenges of, of uh, technology and travel and and income and so forth, uh, poverty. Uh, I wanted to be a non-anxious presence at the college. So I remember when I started there, how I used to watch uh, the leadership when I was on staff. So initially I was, I was a lecturer, always rushing um, 
walking really quickly. And I thought when I'm when I was principal, I thought I'm going to walk slowly. Um, I'm going to give the impression that there's no crisis. <laughs> we don't have to hurry somewhere. I'm not rushing to this meeting or that meeting. Um, even when I did my doctoral work, I found Christian leaders were often uh, characterised by being busy and they prided themselves on it. I remember one principal I spoke to in a particular school. I, I, I walked into his uh, office area and he rushed past me down the corridor looking at his watch, you know, oh, you know I've, got to, I've got to get this done, I'll be back in a few minutes. And then he set a time limit on the interview and he rushed off somewhere else. I'm thinking... Um, faithfulness doesn't look like busyness necessarily. Sure, there are times when there's crisis and we rush, but not as a habitual lifestyle. Um, the Christian walk with the Lord also needs to um, characterise uh, faithful, quietness, confidence, trust, patience. Um, everything's not a crisis. So uh, another thing I did was I, I started carrying my Bible with me. Uh, around the place there was a there was a accusation i think that we'd moved away from biblical foundations somewhat and i thought well when i go places i'm going to carry a bible and just it's just a statement that the bible is really important to us here at the college and it always has been and it's important to me as well it's the word of god in in scripture and uh so carrying a bible i think um and going to church and um preaching in churches. Uh, I did a lot of preaching when I was principal at Laidlaw and particularly in Pacifica churches and churches which weren't our traditional base, uh, the, the Brethren type of church or the Presbyterian type of church. Uh, just to say the principal of Laidlaw loves the scriptures, loves preaching, loves the church and is willing to, um, to be available for that in the midst of all the other demands and responsibilities that principals have. Um, so the college, I think, went through considerable transitions uh, and uh, we would love and did love as principal there at that time to raise up leaders for the church, but also raise up leaders across society for cultural engagement. Cool. Well, um, speaking of your experience Adelaide Law in New Zealand. Um, so you've worked in both Christian education in New Zealand and um, over in Australia. What what would you say are some similarities uh, between the two and some differences? Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a great question, Caleb. Um, look, I think New Zealand. Uh, is a really refreshing country. And I think the Christian scene in New Zealand is refreshing. We loved the freedom uh, to speak uh, across a very rich cultural um, context in New Zealand, represented very much uh, by Pacifica nations. Uh, and Sydney, I think, uh, hasn't honoured, New South Wales and Australia haven't honoured the Pacific context nearly as well as Aotearoa New Zealand has. So we loved West Auckland. Uh, we loved uh, Māori uh, Pacifica contexts. Uh, I made um, numbers of attempts to learn te reo and had a tutor and uh, learned the Lord's Prayer and other welcomes and introductions for uh, marae visits and, and meetings. Loved that, and that's very much absent. 
uh, here in Sydney and in New South Wales, and particularly up here in Springwood, which is extremely European and British. Um, when we left New South Wales and Sydney, uh, there's some very powerful Christian blocks here represented by a couple of uh, theological uh, power players that wasn't evidenced in Auckland or New Zealand. Uh, there are some power players in Auckland, but uh, it seemed to me there was more permission in Auckland and in New Zealand just to discover and, and work things through. Uh, uh, here in Australia, uh, there's some troubling, I think, very wealthy, very powerful blocks within the Christian scene which aren't bearing great witness to the gospel. Um, so the schooling system in New Zealand is much smaller than it is here in, uh, in Australia. There's hundreds of Christian schools here, but when you talk about Kingsway or Elam um, in New Zealand, there's, there's not that many, uh, certainly not that many that are large schools. And so there's all sorts of opportunities for the Christian schooling movement in New Zealand to continue to grow and flourish, and I, I trust it will. Uh, I had a lot of time with the navigators when I was a younger Christian, and we always felt that the New Zealand navigators were amongst the most radical in, in our um, relationships. Uh, great, bold uh, evangelists and testifiers, and I think New Zealand has, uh, has raised up some wonderful leaders uh, in the Christian scene, and uh, Mr Laidlaw is one of them, uh, but we came across many uh, fine leaders in New Zealand. There seems to be an entrepreneurial spirit, a sort of let's have a go type attitude there. Maybe Australia is more contained in its, um, its uh, desire to be wealthy and powerful and safe, I'm not sure. Uh, so very refreshing in New Zealand. And I think still lots of opportunities for New Zealand to continue growing. I know Paul Windsor used to say to me that... Um, the theological heritage in, in New Zealand uh, was quite weak and the preaching heritage was weak. And I think that's also true. Uh, New Zealand has in some ways stayed out of many of the more rigorous debates around theology. Uh, not now, but I think back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, that's been a, to their detriment, I think. Um, mm. You've yeah. got to be able to have rigorous conflict and debate and discussion to grow and in the right spirit uh, we didn't find a lot of that and not at least as a habit or a tradition in New Zealand um, but I think Laidlaw, Carey and other colleges are helping that to change because they've got world-class scholars in their in their faculties um, so there are differences uh, and uh, probably my summary of the New Zealand days was we found it uh, very refreshing, very refreshing, ethnically, culturally, musically, artistically, um, uh, in terms of the, um, the creational beauty of the, of, the, of the country, very refreshing. Yeah. And who do you think invented Pavlova? <laughs> Yeah, I haven't made a final decision on that one, but uh, we've got a number of uh, a number of claims that collide, don't we? Uh, in terms of yeah. who, who is Farlap a, a New Zealand horse or an Australian horse? Uh, who invented uh, Pavlova? Uh, but I'm I'm happy to let you have that one if, if you. Oh, 
Caleb, we promise nothing can controversial on the podcast. Like, <laughs> it's, that, it's not that you let us, it's that we do have it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Look, the Anzac tradition and uh, the stories told across the two countries uh, is a unifying tradition, obviously, but mm, the yeah. black wallaby uh, conflict is less unifying. And uh, uh, I've given up. Well, recently, of course, with a New Zealand coach, the wallabies uh, aren't doing so badly, but... Uh, we have yet to dominate the All Blacks, which maybe will never, never happen. I, I don't know. <laughs> or you're stroking a backstroke. Right? You know, the New Zealand audience will uh, love what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder, like, just building on some of it, like, in slight segue, but, you know, continuing the conversation and transitioning to Christian education um, generally. Like, it, it's interesting what you're saying about these points of similarity, but also these points of distinction. So you you as an educator, um, I mean, because obviously a lot of it, you know, there seems to be this Venn diagram overlap between like you as a pastoral presence. I, I love what you're saying about being dual vocational, you know, although I imagine you'd also be a person that, is, that would not begrudge the ox from, uh, you know, having some of the grain while it's being treated out, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's it's interesting that actually a lot of these things kind of overlap and influence each other. Like, um, I'm, I'm curious about some of the things that have actually kind of formed your your view of, say, Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I mean, I have a couple of names here because ideas that I think it kind of resemble, but they might be like, no, that that means nothing to me, or it's like, yes, actually, that's a big part of actually. What I think I'd, I'd just love to actually put a couple of those to you and actually sure. thank yeah. you. So, I mean, we've mentioned kind of professionalism in brief. Um, is the ideas of Van Brummelen and say his work, um, Walking with God in the Classroom, is that one quite close to your heart or what? <laughs> yeah, I, I stayed with Harrow and his wife. Um, wow. In Canada uh, at one time and got to know him quite well. And uh, I interacted with him too in the doctoral years uh walking with christ in the classroom has been a very influential text uh, as has all of his work and um yeah we we honor him uh he hasn't been particularly influential for me mm. um, and my view is that uh, harrow like a lot of uh educational leaders through the 80s wasn't nearly as shaped by the narrative of scripture mm. as he was by principles and themes within scripture so his four great commandment commission etc uh they can be uh lifted away from the narrative of scripture and i i think there was a big change occurring in in biblical theology and narrative theology around about 1985, 86, 87 through there. Uh, and Harrow doesn't, for me, represent that. Right. Um, but he's part of a wonderful tradition uh, and uh, wonderful work that was done in Canada and other schools around the world, and his writings have been very influential. Mm. Um, around about the middle of the 80s, however, the, the idea that Scripture could be read as a five- or six-act play uh, Tom Wright's idea, and Brian Walsh uh, tells me he gave that to Tom Wright uh, initially that uh, the Shakespearean play with the, you know, the last part's been lost and now we're improvising faithfully out of the script for our own 21st century uh, witness. 
that idea uh, and the writings from Australia here of, uh, of Graham Goldsworthy and uh, Bill Bumrell uh, and then Mike Goheen and uh, Al Walters, who were very influential for me around about 2000, and then Tramper Longman and uh, Scott Mc, uh, McKnight and many others, then Othrana Machandra, who came to Laidlaw, uh, is much more shaped by the full, sh the full narrative scope of scripture, the unfolding covenantal shape of scripture. Mm. And I think that's what teachers and schools need to embrace. I was asked uh, and have written about this, uh, what do I think about the language of being Christ-centred? And I said, mm. I don't actually like it that much. Uh, the idea that everything revolves around Jesus uh, isn't quite the metaphor I want for what it looks like to educate. Uh, Education is actually about leading people from, through and to something. It's a journey. So give me grounded metaphors of walking and planting and travelling uh, in a community of like-mindedness uh, rather than centric ideas about going around and around and around. Uh, the centric idea is not entirely unhelpful, but everybody uses it uh, from mm. Seventh-day Adventists to evangelistic or evangelical Christian schools to Roman Catholic schools. Everybody says, of course, we it all revolves around Christ. Uh, if, if we're saying by that that Christ is uh, at the heart of, uh, Lord of all things, then that's great. But I don't see people doing it very well. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather see people telling me, where are you coming from? What are you going through? And where are you heading? Mm -hmm. The walking metaphor, uh, the road metaphor. I am the way. I am the road, the truth, the life as the kinds of metaphors that um, that characterise what education is about. Ed educare, education, Thomas Groom's work going way back, is about leading out. It's about leading, uh, leading from, through and to, from who are the students, through what's your curriculum and community, to what's your mission and goal, discipleship and faithful witness. I like that kind of stuff. And so I don't think Harrow... Uh, though he's, he's wonderful, uh, quite nailed that. So walking with Christ in the classroom, absolutely influential, but uh, there's others that I prefer. <laughs> <laughs> there's like my mind's buzzing with our connections I want to go on to, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll get a bit of ahead of ourselves. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tame myself and, uh, you know, ask the next point I want to ask you about. Um, what would you say of, say, um, uh, Walsh and Middleton's transforming vision um, yeah. was that was that quite a formative text for you? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, Walsh, I had the privilege of getting to know over the years. I uh, never met Middleton, uh, but Doug Blomberg here in Australia did similar work, and I, I think he's a very fine Christian educator, leader, and writer. Though uh, many people struggle with the level of his books, they're, they're challenging linguistically, but. Uh, but he's he's wonderful. Yeah, Transforming Vision, I, I think, is a great book. And um, uh, Gloria Stronks was another one who, with Doug, uh, wrote um, um, Vision with a Task, which I think is a really helpful book. Mm. Uh, Brian Walsh then wrote um, Colossians Remixed, for example, uh, and uh, and other other texts. And I think Brian's a quite radical thinker. Mm. Uh, and very culturally engaged, and his work and Sylvia Kismat's work 
uh, is really inspiring and uh, it grabs imagination and heart as well as being practical. So, yeah, I, I, that book was very influential back mm. in those days. For, for the uh, curious Christian educator who might be listening to this, could you maybe elevate a pitch that, that work, you know, just uh, briefly? Like uh, what what is that book trying to, uh, as you recall it, what is it trying Transforming to Transforming Vision? Yeah. Well, I think he's trying to say that I, I, I don't have great recollection now of the details of that book, but I think he's he's wanting to say, as some of those other names that I've just mentioned, that that our, our educational goals are radically other than those of a secular school. The, the vision we have, it's a kingdom vision. It's a, it is a transforming vision. We're, we're not merely trying to uh, graduate young people who, who are nice and who will achieve at university and get a good wage. Uh, we're actually um, educational communities for raising up countercultural disciples who are going to rock the boat. And uh, that doesn't look like the secular school dream of tolerance and niceness and moderation and wage getting and uh, career achieving. All of those things may occur. And we certainly would love to have uh, faithful disciples of Jesus in political and business leadership. Um, but our goals and our visions for our graduates and our students are to set them on fire for a very different kind of kingdom where power looks radically different uh, to power in the world of secular business and entertainment. So our vision needs to be very uh, strongly articulated and then it needs to have embedded in it practices, liturgical practices. So this is where Jamie Smith's, James K.A. Smith's work is really helpful more recently. Practices and liturgies that challenge cultural liturgies in the marketplace, um, uh, the airport, uh, the highway, the suburbs, the cities, the urban centres, such that uh, our hearts and imaginations and our habits and practices uh, are shaped completely differently uh, to those others. Uh, we've underestimated cultural power, uh, and so our schools have underestimated, I think, the task of uh, transforming young people into kingdom citizens. So Walsh's book, Walsh and Middleton's book, um, I think gave us a countercultural vision from which we then act. Thank you. I love what you've said there. Um, I wonder as well, like um, you may or may not remember a particular uh, shared association um, from maybe your time in Masters. Does the name Michael Moimoy ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, Mike, oh, go on. Yeah. Oh, Masters Institute Day is were wonderful uh, mm. when I first came to New Zealand and uh, that was 2004, five and six mm. uh, after uh, Christina Belcher went back to uh, Canada and um, we wrote the Worldview Diploma mm. uh, to be taught by distance uh, and I had some wonderful colleagues at Masters. I do remember those days as challenging yes, uh, as well, but... Uh, mm. Very lively, and Michael Moimoy, I do remember, yeah. <laughs> um, Michael was uh, quite an inspirational leader for us um, for a time in the Kingsway Middle School. Mm -hmm. um, and one idea that he um, really captured his imagination, he used to talk a lot about a lot in terms of the outworking of Christian education, was um, the head, heart, and hands triad. 
um, which you know I've since looked up, um, is this idea that comes from a Johann Heinrich. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Uh, Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, um, and actually, yeah. Yeah. yes, and just I, I surveyed him in, in the doctorate. Pestalozzi. Oh, did you? Yeah. 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 I mean, like, it's, it's, it's an idea that really sticks with me that actually the formation of any person, especially in terms of Christian education, is about actually what shapes the head, the heart and the hands, the whole person in terms of your discipleship. Is this something that is uh, close to your heart in terms yeah. of the view of the teacher? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really, those three terms, head, hand, heart, are really uh, helpful uh, because we're not merely on about rational uh, intelligence or, or thinking well. Worldview, of course, um, insists that much of what shapes our lives is precognitive or uh, presuppositional or assumption. Uh, and uh, Ed Hart Hand would say we're dealing with human beings, with, with embodied beings. Mm. And so emotions, imagination, presupposition, practices, embodied um beings that that looks much more like head heart than merely um head we've over overestimated the persuasiveness of the rational as against all of those others um, i was with proverbs this morning and um it, it's a wonderful wisdom book uh, an ancient wisdom book which we use very badly i think uh the way we preach from proverbs but but one thing that you can't help but uh notice in proverbs is how much bodily language there is. The language of eyes and ears and mouth and hands and arms and legs, uh, and then the language of heart. So one proverb that many of us do know, you know, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So the Hebrew scripture writers knew that there was a sort of a core to our humanity that worked itself out through looking and listening and speaking and acting uh, and then those practices go back into and shape your course. So there's, there's an inside-outside, inside-outside, this uh, dualistic or um, embodied way of being which has this very wonderful centre to it or core, the heart. Uh, and Kuiper wrote a lot about the heart, but also uh, where we go, how we walk, what we say, what we look at, how we listen, what happens on our lips, uh, that's head, heart, hand stuff. So all of that is uh, is really important. And we've got to understand head, heart, hand, not as individuals, but as individuals in relationship. So individuals in communities. So head, heart, hand doesn't just mean me, it means us. And education is all about uh, relationality. Uh, so the two words I think that are really important for disciples of Christ, one is responsiveness. Uh, we're, we're listening to God speak. We're responsive to the world and uh, we uh, don't initiate things. We respond to God. And then relationality, responsiveness and relationality. We live in loving relationships with God and neighbour, with enemy and friend, uh, reconciled and forgiving relationships we trust. So responsiveness and relationality for head, heart and hand uh, it's nicely holistic and it's more than individualistic. Mm. Yeah. Is Michael still there at Kingsway? Michael is now working in Korea. Um, he uh, had a role there previously and then he came back to New Zealand 
And for a time, actually said, you know, don't want to be a teacher. Then via kind of some, you know, miraculous intervention, his own testimony, um, God said, like, no, I want you in this particular role at Kingsway. Uh, he would say himself, it was kind of like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> it was with reluctance, but with obedience, he did it. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was very... It was very formative for him. It was very formative for us, um, his time there. But uh, yeah, a similar situation. Um, he was very happy at Kingsway. And then he had to have a situation where he had to lay down a fleece where, oh, okay, you're calling me into this new context in Korea or back to this role I previously had. And God said, yep, that's where I want you to go. Right. Thus, that's where he is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So relationships for me at Masters with uh, Diane School and... Mm. Yvonne Burroughs and many others uh, commenced back in 2004, five and six. And all of that only happened because of the doctoral study, which opens up mm. new opportunities. And so, you know, you can look back on God's uh, weaving together of, of it. And, uh, mm. It's lovely. It's, uh, Amen. Well, yeah. you know, my, my, I don't know if I've actually said this before, my sister is Renee Ford. I don't know if that uh, rings. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember. yeah. 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 So uh, she, uh, she's still, uh, practicing doing some great work at Hastings Christian School she's a senior school teacher there now um okay yeah um before we move into our, our final section with you I'd love to ask you something I've, I've heard you quoted as saying and I'd like to hear just kind of your own thoughts around it if, if you could Rod um you've been quoted as saying actually this idea of to be a teacher is to be worthy of imitation yeah <laughs> and I'd love if you could actually just unpack that yeah 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 yeah, somebody once said to me, that's the scariest definition of teaching that uh, he'd ever heard. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to teach to mm. teach is to say to your students that your life is worthy of imitation. Mm. Yeah, I think that's what teaching is. And, and the intent of that comment is to say it's not about imparting information or covering off on curriculum content. Uh, it is about inspiration, identification, and imitation. So all of these inwards uh, are really important. Um, many of our young people have no heroes that are within reach. They have superheroes, they have celebrity heroes, they have sporting heroes, the Michael Jordan type figures. Uh, and sometimes we hope that their parents are their heroes, but lots of young people now don't have parents that they um, find to be their heroes. The next most likely person to be a hero is, is a teacher. And uh, my own experience of that was that in year 11 and 12, I had a, uh, I thought an older lady at the time, I think she was probably in her later 40s or 50s, who, who was my maths teacher. I hated maths and I was poor at maths, but she was such an inspiration to me uh, and changed my life. And I think possibly uh, the reason I became a teacher was because of this single teacher uh, who, whose passion and determination and love of the world of mathematics uh, was mysterious at the time for a 16 or 17 year old, but just alluring. It was like, what's she on about? I love football and music and movies. And she loved um, theorems and algorithms and the whole world of mathematics with its uh, neatness and clarity and yet its mystery and wonder. Now, I can't remember any of the content that she taught me, but I always quote her as one of the most influential people in my life who for two years opened up a world of wonder through mathematics. Mm. And I wanted to be like her. 
and uh, she she actually just read her obituary this week. Um, she died at 94 uh, last September and uh, became a principal and taught in schools in Australia and in Canada and London. Um, that's what I mean by uh, being worthy of imitation. Uh, whether it's your love or justice or patience, your love for woodwork or physical education or mathematics or biology, it's your passion, it's your um, desire to, to treat students with honour and respect, whatever it is, uh, teachers are truly teachers when students uh, say to them, I, I want to be like you. That's what teaching is all about. And it's I want to be like you in a curriculum context. It's not just I want to be like you because you're a great person, but because you love this, this aspect of God's world when we read Dutch philosophers like Doivien and, and, and von Hoven and the work that came out of uh, this love of creation, what schooling is, is opening up God's world and God to young inquiring minds who are going to go into God's world and pursue and explore some aspect of it, maybe business, economics, politics, whatever. But if they have teachers who display that in the areas of curriculum that they're working with as well as conveying content you're conveying a way of being human in the world which is worthy of imitation and that's what i think teaching is at its essence mm. it, it reminds me very much of the idea proposed by paul of imitate me as i imitate christ right yeah that that's that sticks with me um i remember die die scholar diane scholar um unpacking that idea and quoting you and actually in our one of our classes talking about it in reference to that it's like this idea of actually you know in the rabbinical culture and like uh jesus's context it wasn't just follow a teacher it wasn't just learn from a teacher it was to be discipled by a rabbi means to become your teacher you know right. yeah and, and there's this idea of actually imitation as this kind of uh yeah it's this embodied practice isn't it like yeah. actually you know you I say terrifying because it is, but I also, it's like, you know, one of the great things that, that formed part of my teaching philosophy is like, yep, that's definitely something I want to strive towards that actually imitate me as I am a take Christ, you know, um, because students aren't just observing content. <laughs> if I'm honest, a lot of the time they aren't observing content. <laughs> More yeah. often than that, they're observing the person. They're actually yeah. wanting to know who the person is. Yeah, I was, um, I was 24 when I started teaching I'd done some practice teaching before that but I was 24 when I became a full-time teacher and what do, you, what do you know when you're 24 you know you, you need colleagues around you who are wise um, I was always I think in those early years uh, quite an angry teacher uh, control and discipline um, achieving my goals um, made me angry when students blocked that and it was quite a few years later that I realized that teaching is not about control uh, it's actually about love, and from love comes wisdom, which brings control or community into being. Um, now, students don't want to imitate angry teachers, um, but they do want to imitate wise, loving teachers who generate control or peace or community out of clever strategies, wise strategies, thought-through strategies, 
which you don't get angry about. You just look for other ways to achieve them if they're challenged. So I, uh, I love the idea that I was able to put aside some of that anger from those early years um, by affirming, I think, that it's really about love, which makes you more thoughtful, more prayerful, more focused on the community and the individuals that make it up. Uh, and if control isn't the case, then you keep working for it, um, but it doesn't make you angry any longer. And I found that quite a transition in my, um, my teaching career. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I really like the the idea of um, wanting to be like the teachers who aren't uh, the ones about control. I, I remember specifically there's one one teacher that I had in my primary school days. Uh, her name was often um, changed into a, 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 a word for bird excrement. Um, and uh, <laughs> she... Over some school holidays, she went on a trip to Turkey. Now, this is speaking of control. She came back and um, on the positive side, she gave us uh, some Turkish delight, which was great. We all loved, you know, school kids getting given candy. That was great. Um, but what she made us do for our fitness class that day was she, she had seen a parade that had been put on by the Turkish military. Um, and she was so fascinated with the way in which they would goose step in formation, um, you know, lifting their legs up extremely high. And uh, then she thought for our fitness class that day, it would be a wonderful idea to have uh, a group of nine-year-olds parade around the, the court in front of a bunch of classrooms uh, trying to goose step in formation. Um, and looking back on that in recent years, I've realized, oh, she was really getting us to, to do that. that, that that's um, uh, just, just an interesting, uh, and, and yeah, uh, definitely uh, that, that, that's a, a more, more, more funny anecdote, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. A, a, a bad instance of control over love. Yeah. Uh, love um, welcomes diversity in unity and unity in diversity rather than sameness uh, as though God gave us a world where there is not rich diversity in wondrous, wondrous unity. And that's what classrooms will be as well and communities more generally and even family gatherings are very much diverse and hopefully in the unity of peace. Mm -hmm. Um, but we dare not collapse diversity for unity. Uh, we need to value both. And, of course, the triune God, who is one and three, is the eternal um, display of diversity within unity and unity within diversity yeah. uh, from which we can learn. And the wonder of the Trinity is at the heart of our wisdom as disciples of Christ, I trust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so moving on from there uh, into... Uh, more along the lines of pastoral ministry. Um, uh, what extent would you say um, apologetics needs to feature in both congregational teaching and uh, also in Christian education? Mm. Well, I've always felt that apologetics was a bit overrated. Um, <laughs> and uh, when I've seen apologists in action, uh, sometimes it's being characterised by a fair arrogance around the quest for certainty and proof. Uh, 
which I don't think is always available. So I, I don't want to dismiss apologetics entirely. Um, there's been some wonderful works in the apologetic areas, uh, more than the carpenter and, you know, Josh McDowell that, at that popular level. Um, but worldview uh, work and much of my last two decades has been in the worldview area would say that people aren't convinced into the kingdom uh, they're wooed into the kingdom by opening up the wonder of the gospel and inviting them into the story of Jesus. Mm. Um, I think apologetics is important, and I think for some kinds of folks, they need um, good, clear answers to difficult questions. They need to understand the, the Christian perspective as against the secular or the communist or the greenie or whatever it happens to be. Um, but I would, if I was going to err, I would err on the side of uh, education needs to be shaped by immersion in the text of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Let our systematic theologies and our apologetics and our closed systems emerge out of that at some point, but they will never replace it. They're not as important as immersion in Scripture. And uh, I think we're living in a world where the quest for certainty and the fear of not having answers to questions is way too great. Yeah. Um, certainly not a word that I like, um, and uh, Newbigin and others have talked about this. A much better word for Christians is the word confidence. Um, we're very confident uh, about wisdom and knowledge and guidance and the future because God's trustworthy and because we are growing, I trust to be a trustworthy community who keep promises and are faithful to the elderly and the poor and to the failures and those who need forgiveness or to the times of failure. Certainty is not on offer in a fallen world uh, where mystery and wonder are more characteristic than certainty and clarity. Any of us who've lived through tragedies, um, through so-called natural disasters, through the loss of a friend, through a debilitating cancer, uh, through the death of a child, uh, and all of us will live through some of those, know that the quest for certainty is, uh, is not only an unkind quest, it's an impossible quest. So if, if by apologetics we're sort of saying that that's what we want to give people, we don't want to give them that. Yeah. Yeah. So, sure, apologetics is useful and helpful, but let's not uh, make it the main game. Yeah. I, I quite like um, uh, in, in William Lane Craig's work, Reasonable Faith, he puts it that it's not necessarily, and as you said, you know, we, we don't convince people into Christianity. You know, that that's not necessarily the realm <laughs> of um, Christian academic yeah. apologetics, but it's more to give the Christian the, uh, the uh, intellectual right, as it were, to be heard in that sphere, um, yeah. the, the sphere of academics and yeah. intellectualism. And, and, and I think it does work for that. But like you say, um, certainty, it, it, it doesn't necessarily always lead to that. Yeah. And it can be in quite, like you say, an arrogant manner. Well, yeah, I think, you... oh, sorry, I, I was just going to say, like it certainly appeals to the idea that you're saying right about you know, unity and diversity within the body and yeah. actually people within their own vocation, their own spheres of influence, you know, 
faithfully seeking to worship God in that context. And actually, you know, their understanding, it's like, hey, you know, the task God has for me, the people God has for me to reach are probably people that are like in, in this way are similar to me and like me. So therefore, that is my that is my living sacrifice offered up to God that I, I faithfully serve him with the skills and the gifts and talents that I have in that context. Yeah. Sorry, I, I jumped in before. No, no, I think you're, and I think you're right. Uh, within the realms of philosophy and philosophical interest, logic, I think is really important. Uh, and my mathematics teacher back in my younger days about whom I spoke before reveled in the, the lovely clarities that, one can find within numeracy and mathematics. But aesthetics is equally important. And yes. when we delve into what yes. is beauty and what makes something beautiful or ugly, uh, when we look into the world of art and literature and creation, uh, we have another way into God's world, which is, which is also important. I think it is the case that what captures people's hearts uh, uh, and, and I'll uh, I've written about this recently, but it's it's a great community to belong to in which I'll find my identity. It's heroes to imitate. That's who I want to be like. It's stories that inspire me, make me weep and laugh. I want to belong to that story. And it's habits, habits and practices that liberate my heart and make me um, um, good or filled or free in the way Scripture speaks about so it's, it's identification, it's imitation, mm -hmm. it's identity, it's inspiration, and all of those for Christians are gained through an immersion in Scripture as the grounds from which all of that flows and flourishes. Uh, so that, that's beyond um, the, the world of certainly your, you know, the world that, that apologetics addresses, but... That's not to say apologetics is a bad thing. I just don't think it's it's quite the uh, save that we'd hoped it would be, um, perhaps in the latter half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, Post-modernity has changed things. And look at the success of, of movies such as uh, Lord of the Rings and, and uh, you know, all, all of the um, um, super hero figure movies. And Marvel films. and Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> kids... Kids are playing those games. You know, they're they're addicted to those figures because it in, it sets the imagination free. That's what the Bible does for us in another way, and that's what will grab our heart and our desire. Proverbs has a lot to say about desires, and the question, "What do you want? What do you really want?" is a really important question. You know, some people want clarity, and so apologetics will serve them. Mm. Um, I'm curious, Rod, then, that I, I, what are some other schools of theology that are of particular passion to you? Like, um, I'm, I'm definitely getting the impression of hermeneutics. <laughs> um, but something that would have actually, I, I guess, would have been an impression I had gained from my time uh, under your tutelage, directly and indirectly, because we, we did the biblical theologies paper together. Um, uh, one I'm curious about is actually, I'd love to know how much of how much Christology actually plays an impact in actually your 
your orth- your orthopraxis in terms of actually how you what is its what is its relative importance to you in terms of other theology it definitely seems to be one that you emphasize to me probably more so as we've done this interview hermeneutics as emerges actually actually rod places a lot of importance on that yeah but yeah are there, is is there christology is that of importance to you is there other schools of theology that you place yeah. particularly importance on yeah just your thoughts there yeah well the, the, the fundamental and foundational theology of importance is is what's known as biblical theology mm-hmm. which has always had a bit of a secondary reputation to systematics uh, in in the last 40 or 50 years i think because biblical theology means that you're not a person who wants to be a specialist in one aspect of such as christology or uh, eschatology or physiology um, they will arise out of good biblical theology so that the, the great biblical theologians then have passions into certain areas that they um, will systematize and focus on in their writing and their 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 cultural work so for me biblical theology uh, needs to be our first passion and then because scripture uh, is filled by christ and culminated by christ christology uh, is absolutely wonderful as we uh, formulate our understanding of the Christ in his incarnation, his divinity and humanity. Um, I think Trinitarian theology is really, really important. It's one of those distinctives about Christian faith and discipleship, mm-hmm. which are rising out of Hebrew scriptures, which are so impassioned by the commitment to one mighty God who is then revealed as Father, Son and Spirit. Uh, that is wondrous and sets our hearts soaring uh, as we delve into that. Uh, a theology of scripture, of the meaning of authority, inerrancy, infallibility, uh, all of those kinds of word, words around scripture, I think is really important. And I think young people now are asking questions about the stories of scripture. Was there really a Noah's Ark? Did Jonah really get swallowed by a big fish? Uh, do you Christians actually believe that donkeys can speak or serpents can speak? Uh, it's really important for us to tell the stories of Scripture well and to understand uh, what Scripture is as a textual witness uh, to God or a servant to the gospel. So they would be some areas, of course, back in the 80s and 90s, eschatology, end-time theology oh, yeah. was really dominant, and that's yeah. never set me on fire, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm prepared to hope patiently and wait mm-hmm. and see what unfolds. So all of the theology around uh, rapture, end times, uh, tribulation, etc., has not really set me on fire. I think it's been a distraction from Jesus and the, the cross and the resurrection. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, just a few more questions I'd like to ask you before we uh, close out our time here yeah. with you. Um, so as I previously mentioned, one of our one of our privileges with you, with myself, was to actually have you teach um, our year of education, um, the biblical theology paper, um, as a grounding course for all the schools under late law at that point. In yeah. Time. Um, much like ways of knowing was in our second year um, yeah. as an epistemology paper, also a very formational and foundational paper for me. Um, 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you've talked about it in brief um, already, but your thoughts on, say, drama atonement theory and if or how this hermeneutical lens of scripture is one you particularly endorse over others. Um, it seems interesting that many Christian schools in New Zealand seem increasingly to ad adopt and endorse um, creation fall um, redemption restoration models as a as a mode of doing Christian education as a as a way of thinking through things. But yeah, I just wondered what your thoughts are on that particularly. <laughs> There's a lot in the question, Jared. Yes, That's I apologize. Question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, creation for redemption uh, has become the schema or the shorthand formula for the way we think about um, curriculum and policy development in Christian schools and it's and it's helpful uh, it affirms that there's this tension uh, and yet hopeful tension within reality that um, fundamentally things are good they've been um, damaged perverted distorted by the fall and God has entered into that to restore and eventually uh, completely restore the creation and our task is to bring grace and wisdom and restoration to a broken but fundamentally good world, and in including our own humanity. Uh, I think that's all good uh, in terms of perspectives, and uh, Doug Blomberg and others have written about developing curriculum with those questions in mind, what's good about it, what's bad about it, and how can I contribute to its restoration? It, it leads to an active engagement, but not ideal, no idealism uh, about our task in the world. Uh, and so I, I think it's good. I think the problem with creation for redemption restoration, though, is that it's become an excuse for or a replacement for biblical immersion, such that the wisdom that comes from knowing and walking with God is sometimes surrendered for this uh, formulaic perspective, um, which is dull and uh, predictable, and uh, eventually um, it doesn't contribute to wondrous learning or engagement with the world. Yeah. So uh, you don't have a you don't have you, in the big story picture of scripture you do have uh, creation, fall, and redemption as an overarching shape. But within that, you've got many patterns which are more problematic, more mysterious, more um, complicated than that. And that includes, for example, the wisdom literature, a book like Job, for example, uh, which isn't easily resolved within a creation for redemption framework, nor is Song of Songs, uh, for example. So I don't want to get too wedded to creation for redemption. Um, the six-act play idea or thematic approaches to scripture where we we explore the shape of covenant for example or goldsworthy's ex let's explore the shape of gospel throughout scripture uh, i think they're also equally useful so i, I don't want to get wedded uh, to creation for redemption too closely and i i think it has become a bit simplistic uh, and a bit of a shorthand for the rigorous work and play that all of us in education need to do into scripture for ourselves um, into, for example, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, which I think is um, wonderfully enlivening and opens up a whole bunch of questions about creation, mm. which uh, the creation for redemption uh, formula bypasses. Mm. Yeah. 
Mm. No, thank you. That makes sense. Like, uh, I can definitely see what you're saying. It becomes a bit reductionistic and doesn't actually allow, yeah. you know, scripture to speak for itself, you know, actually to, you know, give real, for the Holy Spirit as that author to have the transformative effect, he can via the scripture, you know, like uh, it does a disservice, yes. Yeah. Um, I wrote originally about creation for redemption. I used those three G words. The world is glorious, it's groaning, and now it's grace-filled. Mm. So glory, groaning, grace. But if, if that becomes a three-step, that's the Christian way, then that's taking it too far. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, you know, you could even go further and actually say it's like what you're advocating here is, like, the wealth and worth of Scripture is that there's, yeah. there's many different insights, there's many gems. It's like, you know, if you're just trying to actually just refine it down to one thing, yeah. you're missing the point of actually what the utility of Scripture is. It's like... Yeah. It's yeah. God breathed, so it's continuing to inspire, you know, as you're doing daily meditation reflection on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And many of the many of the most wondrous stories in the scripture aren't neat, like Abraham offering Isaac or being commanded mm. to offer Isaac as a um, sacrifice on Mount exactly. Moriah. Or like the commands in Deuteronomy to uh, to kill your best friend if, mm. if he becomes an idolater. Uh, what do we do with Jonah's story? What do we do with Esther, the story of Esther? What about um, Daniel and his friends? And certainly what about the crucifixion of Jesus? Uh, if God is so good and, and, and there is triumph and, you know, the fallen is going to be redeemed, why is it all so hard? I mean, one, one of the things about Scripture is that this whole redemptive narrative it's difficult. It's it's really, really difficult. God perseveres uh, over generations and generations. And and people like Samson, uh, you know, you've got such failures, such incredible complexity to the unfolding of redemption that to, to portray it neatly is really a disservice. And sometimes people hear creation for redemption as creation, Genesis 1 and 2, fall, Genesis 3, redemption, Jesus. And then you denigrate or dismiss uh, all of the unfolding of Scripture from Genesis 12 to John the Baptist as not really that necessary. You've got creation, Genesis 1, 2, 4, 3, redemption, it's Jesus. What is the long history of Israel really all about, the nations, and why is that there? And why is most of the Bible actually about setbacks and struggles until you get to Jesus. And then you've got more setbacks and struggles in the early church and the kinds of things that Paul says to the Galatians in his letter there and to the Corinthian church, it's just not neat uh, and and uh, and easy. And one of the problems we've got with resilience and perseverance, I think, comes from a very poor reading of Scripture, that often Christians who are you know, disappointed with God, and that was a major selling book back in its day, Disappointment with God, they've got a really naive uh, understanding of of the cost of redemptive engagement in scripture for the apostles of the early church and for our, for our time and place as well. And for, of course, God and for Jesus at the cross. Mm, Love that. Um, Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a particular Bible teacher. I'm particularly enjoying it at the moment because he doesn't shy away from the the tough questions as our Shane Willard. I don't know if that rings a bell. Mm. Uh, 
Yeah, um, he's uh, mostly not a lot of book writing, a lot of uh, preaching engagements, but uh, okay. he's, he's one I definitely recommend. He, uh, okay. he was trained under a Jewish rabbi, um, you know, a Christian person himself, um, but uh, yeah, interesting figure. Um, a final question that I kind of wanted to ask you about is, uh, it's interesting you note about your own uh, theological formation, um, especially around ideas of, say, Imago Dei, were inspired in part by your time in uh, New Zealand. Um, and I like, I'm curious about like, uh, just, you know, these ideas of actually, um, just getting my train of thought. <laughs> I'm curious then of your ideas of actually regarding theology and disability as an educator, like I imagine you have a heart for people achieving and excelling in spite of their difficulties and sometimes even through them. You know, we talked a little bit about First Corinthians earlier and uh, in this cast. Um, I'm reminded of say uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta and her mission coming to mind and actually her, she had this radical view of acceptance of all people because she saw the face of Christ and the people that she was serving, even the, you know, destitute, even those who were dying. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm wonder, wondering then actually what your views actually, what that means to say me as an educator, what that means to the typical Christian, like, uh, you know, what would you pastorally be recommending here to someone like actually, how then do they approach actually how they view people through this lens, like um, what then should we do in response to actually what we believe God's call in our lives is to how we treat others, regard others. Um, it's a good uh, it's a good lead into actually uh, what I, I believe you would like to plug at the end because I would love to yeah. actually talk about that as well. Um, your thoughts? Yeah. The way God uses people in scripture is most surprising and more often than not, the Lord chooses the person who no one expected or anticipated would do the job. Uh, so you look at uh, Saul uh, and David and you see a, a warrior hero in Saul who's a head taller than the average warrior of the time and looks like a king and but isn't and uh, is a tragic failure um, and a sad failure, uh, somewhat pathetic at times, who has a lot of sympathy from me. Um, he should never have been made king in the first part. And then you look at David, who doesn't look anything like a king, who's a, a ruddy young small person. Uh, and time and time again, uh, the Lord does that. He raises up babies like Samuel. Uh, he works through women uh, who are excluded. Uh, he chooses to send his spirit upon immoral and Ex outside people like Jephthah or Samson. And then, of course, Jesus becomes uh, the, the Nazarene carpenter who is the incarnate God. Um, Saul, who's a persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, one of the great early missionaries to the nations. So what God is saying, I think, over and over again is don't label people and, and don't look at and expect um uh, people who are, who are named as, as strong and beautiful and wealthy as being the instruments of God's favour and grace to the world. 
So I think all teachers have a responsibility to uh, uh, to love all of their students and to pray and anticipate that those students who seem less likely are probably more likely and make, make those students uh, objects of your attention and, and, and anticipation and expectation. You know, I've had, I've had young people say words of prophecy to me and you say, well, you know, who would have expected that person to give you a word in season? Uh, because the Lord just delights in using those who are excluded from the power structures of the world. And uh, in my, my own experience in life, I think, has been God lifting up a shy, reluctant, sheltered and fairly anxious person and, and you know, taking me into stuff that I would never have chosen for myself uh, and then seeing me struggle and fail many times um, but keep lifting me up. And I think that's what God does. So that would say teachers need to not get too locked into labelling and naming and expecting uh, around the world's values on human life, but to be much more open-ended and anticipatory than that. Uh, because God delights in weakness, uh, people with nominated disabilities are among those that I think God is doing wonderful and potentially life-transforming work. So Johnny Erickson was one, of course, in, in the past who, who we read and watched the movie and uh, who's had a remarkable ministry. And the Paralympics more recently have been such a display of human courage and joy and delight, um, which, which is so inspiring. Uh, and so at Laid Law, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about theology of disability. John Swinton uh, was one who became a good friend and who's a really important theologian, uh, Scottish, and um, Swinton's books on dementia and uh, uh, justice and compassion are really important. Uh, we, we had Emmanuel uh, Cox join our uh, staff and uh, just generally, I think people with, with nominated disabilities uh, who are atypical uh, have got such uh, a ministry to yeah. us, not because they're other than us, but because in a community of of rich, rich gifted people, uh, people with disabilities really have an important role to play and really do belong. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've got to get a, a, away from the us and them type mentality. All of us have a disability. Uh, all of us are will be disabled eventually and dying. And uh, some of us are temporarily more able than others, but. But people with disabilities have gifts that need to be unwrapped uh, and recognised and uh, permission needs to be uh, given. So here in Sydney now, we've um, commenced a, a new venture. We've opened up a company, propriety limited company called Hope Christian Homes, uh, registered a non-for-profit non charity uh, in New South Wales at the moment. And there's a very large uh, gap in caring for those with disabilities here in housing. So we're buying our intent is to buy properties uh, and to put into those uh, places, uh, into those homes, uh, young people with disability and uh, and their friends. So it won't be like the traditional group home, uh, but a, a living community wrapped up in in a in a community of church participation and Christian community participation. And we just bought the first house and uh, we're renovating it currently. And our first clients will be. Uh, first family will be moving in, uh, in in about three weeks' time. Yeah. So that's been a lovely initiative and um, one that I'm 
spending quite a bit of time on. But um, in scripture, the story of Mephibosheth uh, in David's kingship era is a really important story. It's the high point of David's kingship and needs to be told well. This uh, lame son uh, of, uh, or grandson of, of Saul, son of Jonathan. And uh, that's one story that has largely passed out of being known well. Uh, so we, we need to tell that, that story really well. And, of course, Jesus's love for a relationship with people with disabilities, his care for them and for children and for women disciples like Mary and Martha and for excluded others uh, in the Roman world is just such a priority and it ought to be, uh, it ought to be a, a priority of, of the church and of the Christian school. Wonderful. Um, I love that. Like um, Christine actually has done a wonderful sermon under the Invisible Bodies um, uh, bannerhead uh, preaching on Mephibosheth and that passage. Oh, um, yeah, oh, it's, uh, it's, we'll link that in the description if you know, people are yeah. wanting to check that out too. Um, but, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, wonderful sermon. Um, yeah, love what you've said, love what you've shared as well. Um, I, I can I say it's like, you know, both of you, you know, Caleb and I probably want to say this individually here, but Rod, it's been absolutely phenomenal to have you on. Like, uh, reminds me of the old days and actually, you know, being the community gatherings and actually hearing you preach or, you know, the biblical theology papers. Um, yeah. Thank you for stirring things in my spirit, you know, things that I'll actually be able to go away and think on and actually uh, be able to look at scriptures again and actually be like, yeah, you know, I need to remember what Rod is a, invited me to look at remember to uh to think upon again um and it certainly is actually not just as a person but also as a teacher i really appreciate what you've been able to share with me today thank you thanks man mm. yeah no thank you so much rod um i would just yeah echo everything that jared said and um yeah um before we close up um is there anything that you wanted to uh to plug um other than um the, the recent uh, nothing else no, particularly uh, just just to plug um, the scriptures <laughs> <laughs> okay okay you 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 yeah. are christian dustin any any particular version and um yeah we, we love max Licata and we love eugene peterson and we love the latest novel from this christian author but mm. but really uh, I would love us to be talking more about the book of Nehemiah or, you know, my more recent yeah. reading of James or what I got out of the latest engagement with Leviticus. Uh, the world of scripture uh, is the other world that we belong to and we live out of it. We live in it and out of it for the 21st century. Uh, so that that would be my final plug. <laughs> awesome. I was going to say, we shouldn't be cheeky and say, you know, like, uh, you're not plugging a particular version over any others. <laughs> let's, let's not do that. <laughs> the passion? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and just, uh, I, I, I am reminded um, before we, we at, in preparation for this uh, cast, we put it to our viewers to ask some questions and um, <laughs> We have two two questions from uh, our not our biggest fan, uh, my wife. Um, <laughs> it's an ongoing joke that she doesn't listen to the podcast. So I'm not okay. going to tell her that I said this, and I'll see if she listens to it. See if she listens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, 
do you uh what do you prefer cats or dogs uh, dogs dogs okay <laughs> and what is rod what is your favorite color well it changes but my least favorite color has always been yellow my favorite color uh probably red okay cool yeah does that mean I'm, I'm in a mix of those two so um, yeah 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 yeah, uh, being I like raised like in, yeah, in the vineyard, I'm in that radical middle uh, for yeah, you. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I like bright. I, I love arts and I like bright. And um, cool. so probably red. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Cool. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, um, as we close, can uh, we would love to pray for you. Thank you very much, Carmen. Uh, Lord God, we we thank you very much for this time that you've uh, that you've given to us. Uh, we thank you for the time that Rod has had for us. Uh, we we praise you for the mind that you've given him uh, and the heart that you've given him. Just as important as as we preach. Lord, we uh, we pray that you continue to bless his work uh, in Australia. We thank you for the work and the encouragement that he's had uh, on us here in New Zealand. We, we pray that as as he moves on, that he may feel that, that guiding hand of yours, Lord. Uh, we pray that the words spoken today may reach the hearts of many, uh, not, not in a numbers way, but just in a, in a way that those who listen are touched and encouraged to to delve deep and to elevate both those parts of scripture as, as we mentioned uh, so we can grow closer to you and closer to a, a greater understanding of how you want us to live in this world Lord. so God we, we pray these things we thank you we say in the mighty name of Jesus Amen, Amen. Thanks, Scarlett. Thanks, Jaron. It's been delightful to chat with you and give my love to Christine when you see her and Luke. And um, hopefully we'll catch up sometime down the line. Yeah, hopefully. Um, thank you.